Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Way back in the 1950s and all through at least the 1980s, the Mafia ran operations in southern Illinois just across the river from Cape Girardeau and Scott counties. There were territory battles all throughout the region from the southern tip of Cairo all the way up to East St. Louis. For a long period of time, those territories were controlled by a mobster named Buster Wartman. He was a high-profile mobster who reported directly to Al Capone, who was the leader of the so-called outfit in Chicago. The Purple Crackle in East Cape Girardeau, Illinois, across the river from Cape Girardeau, was part of this scene where nightclubs dotted the landscape along Highway 3 in the rural southern reaches of Illinois. The Crackle and other such places served as covers for illegal gambling and other activities. Two Sykeston men, George and Art Garner, were part of this mobster landscape, as was Virgil Abbott, Mark, and Matt Abbott's grandfather. In the late 1970s, when the Abbott twins were just little boys, someone set off a bomb inside the van parked in Larry Abbott's driveway when they lived in East Cape Girardeau. There were several stories about this in newspapers at the time. Such explosions were common tactics within the Mafia during that era. Bud Pierce, the owner of the Purple Crackle, was known to have bought judges and politicians and policemen. A man named Buddy Buddy Harris, who worked directly for Wortman, also owned several nightclubs. And Virgil Abbott, at different times, worked for Harris, which means he also worked for Buster Wortman. Pierce, I'm told by sources, had a lot of gambling operations at his nightclub and his private residence. The club was busted several times for having slot machines and supporting other illegal gaming. But back to Art and George Garner for a minute. Art owned a hotel in Sykeston and he shot somebody once, so he was definitely feared. But it was his brother, George Garner, who lived in Cairo, about 25 minutes across the river, who was probably the nastiest of all of the local mobsters. I hear different things about George Garner, that he wasn't necessarily a member of the mafia as much as he was a for-hire free agent. He was known for murders and arsons. He once told one of my sources that murder was the easiest crime to get away with if you had no connection to the victim. People would pay for this service. One such murder victim was a man named Jack Estes from Dexter, a business owner. How George Garner died is a part of Scott County history that a lot of people don't know about or at least have forgotten. By the time the early 1980s rolled around, a group of Sykeston politicians were making waves in the state political arena. Bill Farrell, David Mann, and several others were putting on high-dollar fundraisers for Democrat candidates, including Governor Teasdale. Among this group of politicians was a man named Lloyd Briggs, who would become a judge, first a magistrate judge, and then a circuit judge. In 1984, Briggs's family, including his wife Juanita and their three sons, were indicted and charged for their roles in a multi-state drug ring that included as many as 10 states. According to a source with direct knowledge, 
The Briggs family funneled some $200,000 to Teasdale's campaign prior to his win for the governor's seat in Missouri. In return, that influence helped make sure that Juanita Briggs was awarded the contract for the License Bureau, and that access was used to help the drug trade with fake licenses and license plates and what have you. The Briggs family was brought down by the feds. Bill Farrell, in a St. Louis Post-Dispatch article, said the county was understaffed and needed help with a spiraling drug problem, so he called in the feds for help. A source with direct knowledge of a piece of that investigation told me one of the fed agents told him they were intentionally not telling Farrell about the investigation. In later media reports, however, it did state that Scott County was part of the investigation. One of Judge Briggs's sons, who was instrumental in trying to hide all the proceeds through various bank accounts and investments, killed himself before he could be taken into custody. A few years before this drug ring was brought down, Paul Briggs, another one of the judge's sons, was in prison on counterfeiting charges. Briggs, a well-connected source told me, had sold a large quantity of drugs to George Garner, with Garner using counterfeit money to pay for those drugs. Briggs, upon finding out this information, disposed of the briefcase, threw it off of a bridge into a river. But that briefcase washed up downstream and it was turned into authorities, so he was arrested. So George Garner, the for-hire murderer and arsonist, the baddest of the southern Illinois mobsters, died while apparently trying to burn down Paul Briggs's house just outside of Sykeston. That house, in an area outside of Sykeston known as the Mini Farms area, had a barn. The barn is where the Briggses would store drugs before distributing them to places like Kansas City. Authorities said Garner tried to set the house on fire and it didn't catch, and when he returned and opened a door, the flames exploded, he inhaled the flames, and they blistered his lungs from the inside, killing him. So the mobster hitman died inside the house that belonged to the judge's son. From there, they obtained Garner's fingerprints and matched them to a murder of Estes in Dexter, Missouri. And while searching Garner's body, they found a key to the Briggs house in Garner's back pocket. A well-placed source told me that Bill Farrell retrieved that key and personally delivered it to Paul Briggs in prison in southern Illinois. Again, this happened in 1980. Farrell told newspapers later he interviewed Paul Briggs to see if there was a conspiracy involving the death of George Garner, but none could be found. It would be another four years before indictments came down on the Briggs family for their drug ring. At the time, Bill Farrell told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch of the drug ring, quote, you could write a novel on it, but it could take a lot of time before everything comes out, unquote. Paul Briggs, I'm told by a source with direct knowledge, was the mastermind of the Briggs drug operation, or at least he was the one who initially got the family involved. Briggs was a pilot originally from Chaffee, he was involved in an international drug operation, worked for a drug crime boss in Arizona. He flew drugs from Colombia, the country, and delivered them all across the world. We're talking marijuana, cocaine, and quaaludes. Juanita was painted in the media as the orchestrator of this drug ring, and she was plenty active for sure. She was sentenced to 24 years in prison. Kevin, her son, received a 10-year sentence, and Paul, the other son, received less than two years. Judge Briggs was not charged with distributing drugs, but he was convicted on tax evasion and served three years. Again, as mentioned earlier, the other son killed himself upon learning about the family's indictment. As for Paul Briggs, I'm told he would sometimes fly his plane into Sykeston's airport to deliver drugs, but more often he'd use a small landing strip just outside of Scott County in Painton, Missouri, a place where crop dusters could take off and land. 
He preferred this to the Sykeson airport because he could avoid federal agents there. My source told me that Bill Farrell would help Briggs by calling ahead to the authorities in the neighboring county and let them know a friend was on his way and to pay no mind. Once the plane landed, drugs would be loaded onto box trucks then taken to the barn at the mini farm's property for storage until they were distributed to other locations. I'm told Bill Farrell was paid six figures for watching out for the Briggs drug trade. I'm told he could have asked for a lot more. The Briggs drug operation, according to media reports, dated back to at least 1977, which is the same year that Bill Farrell became the sheriff of Scott County, Missouri. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and uh, that's when he saw the Is Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any time. said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or friend. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I... I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he's Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says it's about time a younger man gets in there. He says, like you, you can get in there and make paychecks from a bullshit job. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Mr. Abbott, my name is Charlie Weiss. I'm representing Josh Keezer, the person in jail for the murder of Michelle Wallace. Right. A lot of this episode will contain reenactments of testimony given by Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams during Josh Keezer's exoneration hearings or depositions in 2008. As we've discussed many times before, Mark Abbott's story has changed many, many times over the years. What I've found most interesting in looking through these depositions is the information that was added by both Mark and Kevin Williams how and how their stories conflicted one another. We brought up the morning after the murder in a previous episode where Kevin and Mark bring Glenn Farrell into the story, you know, the owner of the mobile home sales business. So there's going to be some overlap with that in this episode. But there's also some other information that both Abbott and Williams add to the narrative that further support other information and tips that I've received. So just a heads up, this is going to be a long episode, longer than the rest. There's a lot to wade through in this episode. So whether that be Josh's dynamic duo of Charlie Weiss or Stephen Snodgrass or even the uh, Attorney General, uh, Attorney Mike Spillane. I just want to be transparent that these are three different attorneys on two different sides asking the questions, but we're more interested in what the, uh, the witnesses and the suspects are saying. So without further ado, let's jump straight into Mark Abbott's testimony. 
you indicated that you were drinking and driving and, and on paper. What does on paper mean? Well, I got to leave in the scene of an accident when I was 16, and but no, I got on paper for possession of methamphetamine. That's what I was on paper for. On paper means what? On probation. On probation. Yeah. Okay. No, it wasn't that because I wasn't doing no drugs then. I couldn't have been. I, was, I wasn't doing drugs then. So it had to be, what was I on paper for, DWI? I don't know if I was on paper or not. I know I didn't have no driver's license. Probably was the deal. Probably I just didn't have no driver's license. I don't know. I was on paper so long, but probably didn't have no driver's license. You wanted to avoid the police, though, because of... Yeah, because no driver's license. Yeah. But yet you went down to the police station. I know. And you know what? You're right. And you know, that's kind of the moral in me. That's just the way it is. I was just willing to take whatever it was. You know what I mean? It was like something that wasn't right with that girl. And to me, after what I'm going up there, I think, hey, you know, it's like to me, I was calling for an ambulance for her in my mind. And these people scared me. And the next safest place is where in this town, if you've been there, then there's nothing there. The sheriff's department. Now, yeah, I was driving. I didn't want to get far be it. I didn't want to get in trouble for driving. Ain't no doubt. Don't think I did. Okay. To reiterate, the name written in the notes of the dispatcher at the sheriff's department that night was Matt, not Mark. Ron Burton said he saw the jail surveillance video and recognized the twin as Matt by his walk. The twin who returned to the scene was driving a white car, according to Officer Roy Moore. Mark Abbott, who showed up at Heather Pierce's house around 2 a.m., was in a small black truck and was reported as wearing a striped shirt that night. The twin in the car was described as wearing a sweatshirt with a design on it. Mark Abbott had told Heather Pierce he had blood on his hands and needed to wash them. The jailer and dispatcher did not notice blood on the twin's clothes or hands. Mark Abbott did not tell Officer Tom Beardsley that he returned to the Sheriff's Department, but rather came, quote, straight here to the house, unquote. So I, I guess I guess uh, kind of what I'm getting at here, or what, I, what I'm what I'm trying to understand is you, as you're trying to figure out if Josh is connected to this or a suspect or not, it's just really obvious that Mark Abbott is a suspect. It's not like you had to do a lot of digging to, to figure out that that we need to eliminate Mark Abbott as a suspect because he was there and he's telling inconsistent stories. Like this wasn't some sort of like, I'm on a mission to go get Mark Abbott. No, no, it's yeah. this, uh, uh, again, this is just right from the beginning, just, just uh, this could have been an outsider looking in saying, why didn't somebody look at, look at these few things? Just a quick reminder, in case you've forgotten whose voice this is, this is uh, Rick Walter. He was the sheriff who reopened the case. Uh, and again, while we were, uh, you're, you're looking at this case, Mark seems to be, you know, you should be raising the eyebrows now saying something's wrong here. And again, we were looking at, did, did Mark know Josh Kieser? You know, I'm not saying Josh is innocent yet. I'm still saying, is there a connection? Because why is Mark lying? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I used to be nice about saying he wasn't telling the truth. He's just lying. And, and he's caught in all these lies. 
So he was there, you know. Did he go up to the sheriff's office trying to help cover up something for Josh? So, again, we're trying to make these connections between Josh Keezer, the convicted murderer, uh, with the, with these other folks that's, yeah. that's lying about this, about everything that, that you talked to him about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, anything that we would, we would always look at Josh as our suspect first, even after we've reopened his case. know Bill Bonnard though, right? Yeah, I do know Bill Bonnard. And you, from time to time, would give him information, I gather, about the drug business? Well, yeah. Did you? Yeah, I did. Did you call him up on one occasion or tell someone that you wanted to talk to Bonnard and that you remember him coming up and spending some time with you in the Perry County Jail? Uh, I can't recall that, but I can't recall... Again, we're getting to this statement. That's what you're getting to, and I understand it because an officer of the law, but the man where he come up with that, I will never know. Can't you see the sense in that? I mean, it's like you're defending Keezer, right? And if Keezer's innocent, then he should go free. Okay. But then here's another thing. You have to point the finger at somebody else, probably, to a point to get Keezer off or whatever. And to believe Bonnard is, I don't blame you, but the man is lying. Have you ever seen anybody that's got a badge that ever lied? The man's lying. And I'll tell you what, one day I will prove that. Do you remember an occasion when Glenn Farrell called you no. and wanted you to help him convict Mark Abbott for the murder of Michelle Lawless? No. When he took his deposition two days ago, that's what he said. He's never said that to me. In case you're wondering, this is a reenactment of the Kevin Williams testimony in 2008. Glenn Farrell has never called you? No. Mark Abbott said you told him that? No. Not true. Not true. There was a phone conversation that was recorded this past year between you and Mark when he called you from prison and talked to you? Yeah. And he said something to the effect that, you know, I, I don't know where this is coming from. You know, maybe it's Glenn. Hard telling what Glenn will say. We ought to talk to him. Does Glenn talk to you about the Michelle Lawless murder? I haven't talked to Glenn since he brought the DEA to my house in 1995. What do you mean he brought the DEA to your house? He brought the, he was charged with a federal crime and he got a reduction in his time because he brought the authorities to my house and turned me in. Why would he know that you were dealing in drugs? Because he was my very best friend. And while I was locked up in Cape County Jail, I called my wife and told her that a man was coming to get our mobile home tires out from under our house to go out there and take the underpinning loose and show them where the tires are. When she went out there and took it off, the underpinning off and pulled the tires, some money bags fell out and she got scared to death and 
she went to Glenn Farrell's and gave it to him and said, will you hold this? Because I think Kevin is into some wrong stuff. He said, no, I'm not having nothing to do with it. So she come back home and the very next morning, him and authorities were at my mom and dad's house. You had already been arrested, I thought. Yeah, I was in jail. What was he, what were they coming back to your house for? To get the money and to question my wife. So you and he had never discussed cooperating together against Mark Abbott for the murder of Michelle Lawless? No. I think you said you know Jimmy Joe Fowler. Yeah. Now, Jimmy Joe was also using or, or dealing in meth, wasn't he? Yes. Was he part of the group's activities that you participated in? No, not really. Be kind of had his own crowd of people and I was supplying him with meth. So do you remember supplying Robin Natvig with any meth? No, not that I recall. Do you remember ever going to Kathy Fowler calling you up one time and said, look, you've got to come over here, Kevin, and get this gun that's in our house. They say they were living in some sort of trailer or a mobile home and she wanted, you had given Jimmy Joe a gun and she called you up and said, come over. I want you to take this gun out of the house. Do you remember that? They lived in a farmhouse out in the country. It wasn't a mobile home. Okay, some farmhouse out in the country. Yeah. I don't remember giving him a gun. I remember one time her calling me and saying that he went nuts and he was scared. and She was scared that he was going to hurt her and come out and calm him down. So did you go over there on that occasion? Yeah. Do you remember going over there on any occasion and there was a discussion that had started about the Michelle Lawless murder? And basically you said something to the effect that, you know, I know it was Mark. It all started down there in the trailer and things got rough and, and Mark ended up shooting her. No, I never said that. You don't remember saying that? No. You don't remember telling Kathy Fowler anything about the Michelle Lawless murder? No. Do you remember having any discussions with Kathy Fowler and Jimmy Joe Fowler about the Lawless murder? I don't remember talking about it, but I mean, we were all messed up on drugs. Could have been you think you were high one night and might have said something like that? Could have, but I don't recall it. You've heard that Mark Abbott told Bill Bonner that you're the one that shot her. Yep. Have you talked to Mark about that? Yeah. What did he say? Said he didn't say it. It was a lie. I said, Mark, if you did say it, I'll understand because you said anybody would have said anything to get out of federal trouble. And he still denies saying it. You indicated that after he was arrested for drug dealing down here, which which was that a year after you were arrested? Mm -hmm. He was telling the police things about you and his dad and his brother and his own dad. Yeah. How did you learn about that? I've got copies of all the testimony and everything from all the stuff. Feds supplied me with it. They gave you copies of his statements? Yes. And were they saying, is that true? Or here's what Mark has been saying. What do you say about that? Is that what they were? I pled guilty to all of them. I was guilty. Did he plead guilty? Yeah. But he was so messed up on drugs. He'd show up for sentencing and he fled. And they caught him. He was a fugitive from justice. They caught him making meth again down in Springfield, didn't they? Yeah. Brought him back to Perry County? 
Yeah. And then he was ultimately sentenced. Yes. Instead of getting 10 years or five years like you did, he was sentenced to 20 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was he telling police about you? At the time we got arrested? Yes. I don't know. I was in prison already. I thought you said they showed you the statements and so forth. Well, I mean, I got them before I went to the trial. Before I went to court, I mean. The stuff that he said prior, I don't know what he said after he got indicted. I was already in prison. Before he got indicted, what was he telling the police? Just they questioned him a couple of times and he made statements about me and him and his dad and his dad supplying us the money and me buying meth and just stuff. They never did prosecute his dad though, did they? No. But his dad had given you guys money. Yeah, he gave us money on occasion. To buy meth? Uh-huh. He was a user too. And Mark Abbott's dad ran the little 24-hour convenience store? Yes. Not City? He still got it. And his dad's name is Larry Abbott. Okay, so let's unpack that. First, Kevin denied Mark's statement where Glenn had approached Kevin about turning in Mark for the murder. Kevin is claiming he never told the Natvigs or Kathy Fowler about the Abbots being involved in the murder. And by the way, Kevin was wrong that the DEA came to his house in 1995. It was actually October of 1994. And I have no information that Glenn Farrell had joined the officers when they went to his house to confront his wife, Terry. I should also say that Glenn Farrell has denied through his attorneys to the court that he met Kevin and Mark the morning after the murder. So Mark is saying that Bill Boner is lying and that Ronnie Burton is lying. Kevin is saying that Mark lied about telling the court that Glenn wanted Kevin to go to the authorities on Mark for Michelle's murder, and Glenn Farrell is claiming that both are lying about coming to him the morning after the murder. There's lies all the way around. One thing I found particularly interesting about this portion of testimony is Kevin's willingness to out Larry Abbott, the twin's father. So a quick peek behind the curtain, I was never able to get my hands on the federal investigative files of the speed bump case. And those are the files that Williams is referring to in terms of Mark's testimony against him and Larry Abbott. My files are from the court transcripts and from the investigative files from the state of Missouri. The state files I have do not include any mention of Larry Abbott. So let's review for a minute. At some point in 2000, Kathy Fowler informed Bill Farrell that Kevin Williams had told her that Williams was there the night of the murder and that Williams had said Mark Abbott was responsible for Michelle's murder. Furthermore, Fowler stated that a man named Robert Mancillis, who went by the name Taco and also sometimes Taco Speakman, had disposed of the gun. In an interview report I've seen, Taco stated that he'd been accused of discarding the weapons before by Bill Farrell and Larry Abbott, who came around asking him about it. So if we're to believe the report by Robert Mancillis, we have a man identified by Kevin Williams under oath as fronting money for large meth buys in California, accompanying the sheriff to inquire about the location of the gun used in a murder whose Larry's sons were accused of being involved in. Is it possible that Mancillis was lying in that report? 
Can you think of a reason he would lie about that? Telling that information does not appear to be in his best interest, as he was not in jail or prison at the time. Plus, I confirmed that he told another person close to him the same information. And we also have a source, Brian Conklin, who is now deceased, who told me on the record that Larry Abbott and Bill Farrell were associates and that Larry Abbott was able to get traffic tickets to disappear. there's another suspect here and that's Leon Lamb um, uh, to kind of re review um, for our listeners um, Leon Lamb was uh, Michelle's um, on again off again uh, boyfriend for a couple of years uh, she's the uh, I'm sorry he's he's the one that she kind of really wanted to have that long-term relationship he wasn't really wanting a commitment, but they liked each other. And so they were kind of, like I said, on again and off again. And uh, uh, she had stopped by his house on the way home from Sykeston uh, that night and uh, had a sexual encounter with him. And um, from there she went on her way and later she was found. So obviously Leon Lamb is on the radar as being a, a suspect. What did, can you kind of refresh, like what did Leon say, what was his story, and what could possibly be done to verify the things that he said? Well, that, at the time whenever, uh, and, and I, I, look at, I look at the old radio logs, uh, starting that night, Bill Farrell and Brenda Shibbets, who she was supposedly the, uh, the lead investigator on this, uh, they went to talk to, to Leon. By the time, if you look at the logs, I think they were, the radio logs, I think they were there less than 15 minutes thereabouts. So you spend less than 15 minutes talking to somebody who admits to being the last person to see her alive. And again, they had a on-again, off-again relationship. They were jealous of each other, so sometimes they would they would get loud. I don't know if there's any physical abuse, but there was, there was a lot of... Uh, They'd be very upset with each other. So there's your, there's a suspect, you know, and you spend less than 15 minutes talking to this person. There was no evidence collected that night. There was no photographs. Um, and, and the radio log shows Bill and Brenda showing up at his residence. They sign off uh, with dispatch. They're going to be out at uh, Leon's residence. Usually if you just... Usually, if you sign off at a at a at a um, a call or a scene, uh, you'll say that you're out here at this at, at a, whatever time. And if you're with somebody, you may sit in the car for a couple minutes and say, "This is what we need to talk about. This is what we need to ask him." And then you get out, you go in, and you make contact with that person. Um, usually, uh, with him, I would have thought that they would have collected evidence, sheets, blankets, anything that you know, um, photographs of whether or not he had any markings on him, whether he was scratched, uh, any of that, that again, you would think that somebody would have, would have collected and nothing was collected. They were back in the car, back in service, um, get, leaving his residence, according to the radio logs. And like I said, around less than around 15 minutes, usually if you get 
you get back in the vehicle. You get back in the vehicle. Uh, you may sit there for a couple minutes talking about what what you had talked with with the suspect. So, how much time did they kill waste uh, in the vehicle before they got out to go talk to him? How much did they waste getting back in the vehicle talking to each other before they went in service? So, so it's going to be around ten minutes. Maybe ten minutes. Yeah. That. Uh, uh, again, whether if whether Leon was innocent at the time or guilty, uh, that's that's the amount of time you initially spend with somebody. You know, uh, again, you you're not you don't have to really be a highly trained detective or or sheriff or whoever to know that you're not you didn't do anything. You know, uh, why didn't you take somebody down and 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 interview, sit down? Back then, they done a question answer interview. Uh, with people, that's that's normal why they did it, or let him write out a statement, uh, take pictures of him because you know she was brutally beaten, she was shot, um, get collect some evidence. There was nothing happened at that time, and that's when you need to to yeah. Uh, you would have really... thought like uh, did they did they have uh, uh, gun residue technology then? Yes, but nothing again. Nothing was collected. Yeah. No scrapings, and and I you know I would even. Give them the benefit of the doubt back then you know you they probably didn't scrape uh, they they should have uh as with the suspect but maybe they didn't think about it obviously they didn't think about anything because they just went and talked to him and it sounded at that point they just informed him that she had been found dead that was it um so um, you know that's there wasn't a whole lot did they did they look into his car or anything like that? There was no record of anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. You no, know, I don't. Now I think that they went back later and looked, but if you have a suspect and you just went and told him, uh, you yeah. know that this that his this girlfriend has been murdered, and then you leave and come back, you're probably not going to find anything if that person is guilty or involved. Yeah. Uh, Leon's kind of been caught in the middle of this the whole the whole time. Um, a lot of people still think you know because. Because uh, she did have his DNA, as it turns out, mm-hmm. under her fingernails, um, you know, which he says was a, a product of the sex that they had, which, you know... Could be explained. Could be explained. Um, but other than that, Leon's just kind of floating out there, right? Right, right. Yeah, we, we interviewed Leon numerous times. Uh, we talked to him. His, his story really never changed. That night, she... He told us that she asked him to uh, let her stay there at his, his, his house or give her a ride home, and he didn't do that. And that's something that whenever you whenever you would interview him and talk to him about it, that's the only thing that really seemed to, I mean, it it bothered him that he didn't let her stay or he didn't he didn't give her a ride home or he didn't follow her, you know. Yeah. So that was. Uh, but, and, and I don't believe in, um, you can call them lie detector tests. You can call them polygraphs, voice stress analyzer. Uh, we have, we had a voice stress analyzer and he said he wanted to do that. Uh, we did it according to that. He passed, uh, you know, that he wasn't lying to us. Yeah. He passed Uh, it at the original also. Yes. A polygraph. So, so he took two tests, a polygraph and a voice stress analyzer. And he passed both of them. Again, I don't, I don't believe in those. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't ask anybody to take those. Uh, the detectives work for me. They did. They asked people, but 
Uh, I think that they're they're not reliable, so I, I don't believe in them. But according to that, if you believe in those, both those two tests, then he did he did pass. If you say today that I'm positive that was the car, that would be lying, wouldn't it? That would be lying. Because you can't be positive. No, I can't be positive. You weren't positive at the time, were you? No. You know, I, it was more of I picked, uh, I picked the, and I guess it, he said the word reinforced it. I guess the sheriff and that lady just reinforced everything, you know, to me. When they jumped for joy, you were like... Wow, it's like, this dude's guilty. Wow, it's like... And they said something about, you know, it would be the number. He didn't say nothing about the height thing. He said something about a number on him. I remember that. In the deposition, I was like, you know, it was like, it would be doing a lie. You know what I mean? To say, hey, this guy's been to jail. Here you go. You know. Do you remember Wyndham telling you... Wyndham who? Sergeant Wyndham. Patrolman Wyndham. The the person, was it Farrell that was there or Wyndham? It was Farrell and the lady. I don't believe there was no other person that was even outside. You don't remember Wyndham being there? No, just heard about him. Was there only one occasion when you were shown these photos or was there another occasion? In the deposition. In the deposition? Yeah. Do you remember telling Brenda Shivitz that the person you saw that night was not white but possibly a Negro or a Mexican? No. Didn't tell her that? No, I didn't tell her that. Do you remember telling Ricky Clay... Do you know who Ricky Clay is? Yeah, I know Ricky Clay. Do you remember telling Ricky Clay how you were at the phone booth and a carload of Mexicans drove up? No. Do you remember people were asking you, how do you know they were Mexicans, Mark? And you said they talked like Mexicans? Well, well, if you guys... Okay, you guys got it on paper here... And you don't, you know, I would have told Ricky Clay anything to get him away from me. Because I didn't even, that's one of them guys you just don't hang around with if you had a job or you worked every day and you just, and you know what, I probably ain't said a hundred words to that guy in my whole life. So you know, for me to say something like that to him, I might have. Who knows what I might have said about it, you know? Next thing I could have gotten out of the doorway from him, I would have left, you know? And when they showed you the pictures and you picked out the picture of Josh Keezer, it looked like him, but you couldn't be 100% sure, could you? No, no. And you, again, you could have been mistaken? It's possible, but I'm just not one of them people to... I mean, these people know me even here. I've been here for 13 years. I just don't bullshit them. They know me. I'm not that type of person, you know? Did you ever tell Shivitz or Sheriff Farrell that you really couldn't, it looked like him, but you really couldn't be positive it was him, that it was Josh Keezer? You know what? I don't even believe he sat there long enough for me. He never gave you that opportunity? Yeah, it was like, you know, no. I never, never told him that. Probably never gave me a chance. I don't know. He might have, he might have not. So if I understand right, you never told any of the officers, Sheriff Farrell, Brenda Shivitz, Linda Marin, that you couldn't be positive that it was Josh Keezer. No. But you're telling us today that you're not positive that it was him, right? 
I'm not positive that it was him. And I really didn't realize it. I never got asked a bunch of questions in that case. A few days there and that was it. I went to court and that was it. No one really spent a lot of time with you no, and me, questioned no. you? No. They just had you identify the that picture was it. and the next thing you know you were in the deposition? Court. And the next thing I know I was in court. Okay. Long story short, on that part, uh, I had Bill was in court in, in Scott County one day. I had him pulled into my office and I said, do you know anything about it? He told me, he said, but the last time I, I got involved in this, I, I thought I was going to lose my job. And uh, I said, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, do you have the report back then? He said, hell no. Uh, I said, do the report from your best you can remember. Don't make it better. Don't make it worse. Just what you can remember of your interview with Mark Abbott. And I said, I, I need that information. And I said, I'm gonna give you till next Wednesday, you contact your chief, you let your chief know what's going on. And because I'm gonna be calling your chief and I want, I want him to know what's going on. A different chief at the time, uh, real good guy. Uh, my opinion, Carl Kennison was a chief of police at the time. I contacted Carl when I said I would. Carl told me, yes, he said, I told him to do the report get it to you. He said, you're trying to do the right thing. And that's when we got the report from Bill Bonner of, okay. of the information on Mark Abbott. Okay. So, um, uh, just, just, just again, to kind of circle this back around and kind of wrap things up on the, on this little part, Mark Abbott becomes a suspect suspect simply because of the, all of the different statements that he's made and all of the, the different stories and lies, um, and then it's it's Mark Abbott himself who brings Kevin Williams into this as a suspect um, when he was in prison in 1997 on, on meth charges. So it's not as if you go hunting for Kevin Williams. It's his name was brought into it by the very person who's already a, a, a suspect. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly exactly right. Yeah. The very person who comes into your office, you have no idea. And so I guess it was then when you're like, okay, well, yeah. now I understand yeah. why he was in my office. Right, yeah. right. You know, and, and uh, he was, he wanted to tell us about a, a Christmas party they were at, you know, um, in November, you know, uh, a Christmas party that you had before Thanksgiving, you know, yeah. uh, that night. Didn't make sense. That didn't really add up. But, you know, again, didn't know anything about him, you know, other than he's there trying to tell me that he's innocent. And, and I, then I found out later the reason why he's at my office telling me that he's innocent is because Bill Farrell told him I opened up an investigation yeah. and pointed him as the yeah. number so, one so, suspect. So that came out of his own mouth yes. because he could have said, he could have said, well, I know that Mark said some things. Well, at that ninety seven, you know, whatever. Right, but it, yeah, he and he and if he would have told me that, I would, I didn't, I still didn't know, I didn't know yeah. at that point, didn't know anything about. Uh, the the detective Bonnard, yeah, you know, had an interview because yeah. detective Bonnard at that point he almost lost his job of trying to help out, uh, so he's like I'm out of Scott yeah. County, yeah, you know. Well, I guess the point that I that I'm trying to draw out is that Kevin Williams didn't need to bring up Bill Farrell. He didn't need to tell you that Bill Farrell told him. He could have simply said Mark Abbott, guy I used to hang out with, 
told me that he told an officer a long time ago that sure you know and i just wanted you know he could have said that i'm just here because mark told me about this and i just want to set the record straight but instead he tells you that that bill farrell informed informed him, him that i opened up the case yeah. as number one yeah yeah, yeah. asked you about Chantel Kreider. You just don't remember her? Who is Chantel Kreider? She was somebody that hung around with you and Kevin Williams and Kevin Moore after this murder. I cannot recall. You sure she was hanging around with me? Yeah. Because you guys are, and let me just, I really didn't hang around with Kevin a whole, whole lot. I didn't hang around with, you know, it, it depends on what you're thinking. I was with him every night or something like that. Yeah. Well, he'd be out all night long, riding around doing things with women, whatever he wanted to do, you know. Me, I had, again, I had to work every day. So I had to have some kind of life a little bit, you know. This, I'm talking about in 94, Mr. Abbott, after you got into the drug problem? No, don't know. Now, he had an excavating business, didn't he, Kevin Williams? I had one. You had one at one point. Yeah. And did you have a shop or a shed where everybody would meet once in a while and talk about your drug dealing, drug deals? Probably. You know what I mean? Probably. I'm not sure. Do you remember where that was? The shop where you... Yeah, Scott City. It was in... It was right close to the river, and it was behind some company. Is that where you'd occasionally meet to talk about your drug business? Well, I worked there, too, and I kept my equipment there... But I'm sure we did. I'm sure we talked about it. But, I mean, it's... I got into some big conspiracy because of... Okay. You have... Then you have to look at it another way. I really didn't deal that mean drugs. I really didn't. I got weight on me because I don't know why you're talking like some big drug dealer, but I never was. I don't think I ever made a dime off the shit. Well, let's talk about the business a little bit. Okay. I understand that you also had a trailer manufacturing business? Yeah. Did you ship trailers out to California? No. You never shipped any trailers to California? I don't believe I ever did. How did you get your drugs? Did you buy them from somebody in California? I didn't personally. Well, part of your group did? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember who was buying the drugs from California? Some truck driver, I don't even know his name. He would bring them in from California on a truck. Yeah. And then you guys would then distribute them? Yeah, but I didn't. It, it was kind of like, yeah, one or two quarter pounds every six months or something like that. What did you have to do with the drug business? I mostly stayed high and didn't really, I sold enough to mess around in the habit a little bit. Did you help finance the buys from California? I did one time. Did you? Yeah. Okay. It went sour or whatever it did. I don't know what the hell. I'm sure I did it one time, but... Do you know a Renee Quintero? Renee? From California? No. I don't know anybody out there. Was he on my indictment? There was a couple Mexicans on my indictment. I don't know. What were the Mexicans doing on your indictment? Well... 
There was 21 of us. Basically, you have somebody like the truck driver go out and get the drugs, come back. Probably a couple of those are Mexicans. Come back, distribute them. Not like people think. Say you got five pounds and you'd end up with a quarter pound of it, maybe even half, I doubt. You share between a few people, all right? You get some smaller amounts, you know? You know, you can't do that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times. So there was a group or gang of 21 people all indicted too. But I didn't know them. Like the majority of them, I didn't even know. Like I heard the name Randy Cordova, but these are names I hear. Did you know any Mexicans? No. As part of this group? No, none. Names maybe, but not even names. When you were first arrested, was this as a result of an indictment? Yes. Have you ever been in prison one time? Yeah. And this is... This is it. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got 20 years. And was Matt arrested with you? Yep. And Kevin Williams also? Yeah. No, Kevin, there was two phases to his indictment. I think it was like 10 down, and then they told him or whatever, and they cooperated. And then they come, got 11 or so more. I don't know if it was the second phase... They got them in the second phase. So there was like 21 people who got sentenced within two years. But anyway, but there's people that these people mess with that got indicted, but I wouldn't know them, you know? I wouldn't know them, but maybe know of them or hear of them. But like those Mexicans, I never known them, never even heard of them. You knew that there were some Mexicans involved in that operation, right? Yeah. When you first went to jail, where did they put you in jail first? Perryville? Perry County? Cape County. In Cape County. Were you in jail with a person named Marion Buck? Yeah. You know Marion? I know Marion. Was Marion part of this group that was indicted? He was in our indictment too. And Kevin was indicted, but in a different indictment? Yeah. Okay. Did you tell Marion Buck that you thought they had the wrong person in jail for the lawless murder? No. Do you remember discussing it with him? No. No, because look, all right, I don't remember discussing it with him. And in the first place, people like Marion or anybody that talked to anybody like that, they make up any kind of lie, you know, and use it against you. You know what I mean? But for me to say, he'd probably say, if, if something like that come, are you 100% sure? No, I'm not. But to say, no, I think they got the wrong person, never. You might have told me. You weren't 100% sure it was Keezer, right? Yeah, I may have done that, but... Do you remember telling Marion that there was some money in the car, in the lawless car that was taken by the Mexicans? No. And then it was used to purchase you some get that methamphetamines? At? I don't know, no. Okay. Those things there, I don't know where people come up with that at, you know? But nevertheless, you were in jail with Marion Buck for a while? Yeah, I was at Perryville with him for maybe a, a week or two. And he was part of this drug operation that you were a part of? Yeah, and you know what? If he told you that, he's lying. You can guarantee that. I hate to say it. He, I don't know why he would ever say that. I have no reason to even say anything like that to him. No money or anything.
just just again to kind of circle this back around and kind of wrap things up on the, on this little part. Mark Abbott becomes a suspect suspect simply because of the all of the different statements that he's made and all of the the different stories and lies. Um, and then it's it's Mark Abbott himself who brings Kevin Williams into this as a suspect um, when he was in prison in 1997 on on meth charges. So it's not as if you go hunting for Kevin Williams. It's his name was brought into it by the very person who's already a, uh, a suspect. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly exactly right. Yeah. The very person who comes into your office, you have no idea. And so I guess it was then when you're like, okay, well, yeah. now I understand yeah. why he was in my office. Right, yeah. right. You know, and, and uh, he was, he wanted to tell us about a, a Christmas party they were at, you know, um, in November, you know, uh, a Christmas party that you had before Thanksgiving, you know, yeah. uh, that night. Didn't make sense. That didn't really add up. But, you know, again, didn't know anything about him, you know, other than he's there trying to tell me that he's innocent. Yeah. And and I then I found out later the reason why he's at my office telling me that he's innocent is because Bill Farrell told him I opened up an investigation yeah. and pointed him as the yeah. number so, one so, suspect. So that came out of his own mouth yes. because he could have said he could have said, Well, I know that Mark said some things. Well at that ninety seven you know, whatever. Right, but it, yeah, he and he and if he would have told me that, I would I didn't I still didn't know I didn't know yeah. at that point, didn't know anything about uh, the the detective Bonnard, yeah, you know, had an interview because yeah. detective Bonnard at that point he almost lost his job of trying to help out, uh, so he's like I'm out of Scott yeah. County, yeah, you know. Well, I guess the point that I that I'm trying to draw out is that Kevin Williams didn't need to bring up Bill Farrell. He didn't need to tell you that Bill Farrell told him. He could have simply said Mark Abbott, guy I used to hang out with told me that he told an officer a long time ago that... Sure. You know, and I just wanted... You know, he could have said that I'm just here because Mark told me about this and I just wanted to set the record straight. But instead, he tells you that, that Bill Farrell informed him. Informed him that I opened up the case yeah. as number one. Yeah. 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 You remember what's going, Mr. Abbott. You had been over and spent a good part of the night at Heather Pierce's in Cape, right? Yeah. And you left. Was it still dark when you left or light coming on? Yeah, morning coming. I don't know how I got up there early. Okay. So anyway, you left, and that would have been probably, what, 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning? No, I don't believe it was that early. It wasn't that early. It was getting daylight. Let's say six o'clock. Yeah, let's say six. Where did you go from there? I think I went straight to my place, and that's where I found the card. You found a card? Yeah, my door. Okay. Then what did you do? I think I called him. I don't remember the meeting. If I say I had one meeting, I might have had it before. I don't know. I think I called him, and he come. And he come and took me to the sheriff's office or something like that. Was this before or after you had gone and got a hold of Kevin Williams and you went over and talked to Glenn Farrell? I don't know. I can't recall that. I know I didn't run straight over to Kevin Williams that morning. I wouldn't have. You went home? Yeah. 
Beardsley says he tried to came by about nine something and ten forty five and finally he didn't get a hold of you until about twelve forty five. Really? Yeah. Do you know what you were doing that morning? No, I don't. I I don't think I went to Kevin's that morning. I can't recall that. I really Man, you're saying noon before we After lunchtime? Before I called him? Before he got a hold of you, Tom Beardsley. That don't seem right. That don't seem right. Do you remember what you did that morning? Not really. I mean, I remember looking at the door. I remember seeing the card in my door. And me to do the right thing would have called him. I wouldn't have not called him. And I know I called him. But I know I wouldn't have waited four or five hours to call him either. I just wouldn't have done it. Or I would have knew exactly what it was about, you know. It's just not me. I wouldn't have done that. No, I can't recall what I was doing that morning. You had been drinking? I was drinking that night. I wasn't drinking that morning, no. I wasn't one of those day drunks or nothing like that. I drink at night. And then another thing, I don't think I went to Kevin's that morning. I remember going to Glenn's, but you're saying it was over that Sunday? Yeah. I did go to Glenn's the next day. Now, I don't believe I went to Glenn's that morning. I would have probably that afternoon because he was mowing his lawn, but I wouldn't have been in the morning, I believe. I remember him mowing his lawn. Do you remember people saying that you had heard that she was killed down in one of the trailers, then drugged back to the car? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember they were saying, oh, I remember they were saying there was blood down the exit. Well, these were things I didn't know. All right. And the rumors. But I remember saying they found a rag or something that had blood on it. These were things I don't know. You know what I mean? Somebody that was there would know. I just don't know. Do you remember you going over and talking to Glenn about having checked out his trailers there was something going on down in the trailers? I never said that. Kevin might have said something, but I'd never said something. I never really talked to Glenn that much. I wasn't close to him, you know? Did you think the trailer park might have had something to do with the murder? No. I wouldn't have had that if I had heard... No, I wouldn't have had that if I had heard... No, unless I unless somebody would have put it in my head that they investigated or found something over there or something. No. I think the only reason I went over there, I probably went with Kevin. I have, but I don't know why, but he, I don't really know why we went over there. You didn't frequent the trailer park? You didn't frequent going over and talking to Glenn, did you? No. So it wasn't that morning that you went over to see Glenn. No, no. You know what? And this is, and you could probably ask Kevin this. Maybe Kevin had some work to do for him. I don't know. Why were you with Kevin that morning? I probably went down and told him what the hell happened to me. You know what I mean? I probably did. You know, I probably said, wow, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. You know, something like that. I don't know. He didn't call you to come get him that evening somewhere? Oh, he may have. I don't know. He may have. Do you remember calling him about 8 something in the morning on Sunday morning? 8 or 8.30, 8.45 on Sunday morning? No, I don't remember calling. It's possible I could have, but I just don't remember calling him. I remember going down there and talking to him about it. Wow, because he was supposed to go with me the night before and he never made it, you know. His old lady wouldn't allow it. You've indicated that you were partying with him that Friday night. Right. This was before the night that you found Michelle Lawless. She was found, I think, somewhere after 1 o'clock in the morning on November 8th. 
which was now early Sunday morning. Right. So that Saturday night, you indicated you were at the Howells. I went by Howells before I went out. Now, I don't know what time. And what was going on at Howells? They was having a little get-together. I think it was a Christmas party or a Thanksgiving party. I'm not sure about that for some reason. They had a get-together. And he usually, I think he puts on one for them, you know. And was Ray Ring at that party? No, I never met Ray Ring until way after that. Do you know Gene Tendell or Gene Tisdale or Tidwell? Do you know a Tidwell? Could you? I don't know what you're saying. I don't know. Who is he? I don't know. I'm just asking you. Somebody that Ray Ring said he was at a party with that night. Ray Ring said Tidwell was at a party. I don't know. Do you know Lyle Day? No. Never heard of him? No. And I think you said the night before on that Friday night, which would have been November the 7th, you and Kevin did go over to a party at the house. No, I went over there. Kevin was already there with Terry. Kevin was already there? Yeah, he was already there. And what was going on? What kind of a party was this? I think they was having a little thing for Christmas, and if I remember right, it was something that they have every year. Okay. Maybe we're confused here. Were there two nights that you went over to Howell's? No. Or just one night? Yeah. When was the night that you went over to the Howell's? This night. Was the night that you found Michelle? Yeah. And Kevin was there at that same party? Right. So you and he were together that night, right? Yeah. And you're saying that he stayed at the party, but you left? Yeah, his wife wouldn't allow him to leave. So to make the record straight, on November 7th, a Saturday night, he, Kevin Williams, and his wife, Terry, were at Howell's. Is that H-O-W-E-L-L-S? I think so. I'm not for sure. Okay. And you joined them at the party? Yeah. And you left sometime and went to the Country Nights yes. bar? uh-huh. And that was all the same night? Yeah. Now, were you out with Kevin the night before that? I think, you know what, and you can take this as far as you want. I think we went out the night before, and that's the reason he couldn't. His wife wouldn't allow him to go out the next night. If I remember correctly, that's what it was. So she came with him on Saturday night. She wasn't going to allow him to go nowhere on Saturday night because I think we was out the night before. Me and him was out the night before, and we probably stayed out late. But you and he were together, except she was with him. Right? On that Saturday? On that Saturday. No, she was... Yeah, we was together. I probably stayed at his place for 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. But I doubt it, you know, at the house. Okay. And you don't remember telling Bobby Wooten that Kevin Williams and Terry Williams were calling you and said that they had heard Ray Ring maybe looking for you? Was it Kevin and her? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't believe that. You don't remember that? No. But I remember hearing that Kevin, uh, Ray Ring, was looking for me, but I couldn't remember who told me that. Okay. And do you remember then telling Bobby Wooten that the person I saw at the phone could have been Ray Ring because he was dark-complected? No. I can't remember saying that. I can't even see myself saying that. Ray Ring is a mulatto, isn't he? Half black, half white? Probably. I probably knew him for five hours. Seen him probably five hours out of my whole life, too, so you know. In that portion of the transcript, we have Mark Abbott denying he knew Ray Ring, at least not for more than five hours of his life. 
Yet according to the speed bump files and more recent interviews with police, Ray Ring was part of the speed bump operation and Ring has stated that he ran drugs for Mark Abbott, including taking Abbott's truck on some of those drug runs. But there's something else that's very interesting. We find out that Mark Abbott went to the Howell party to pick Kevin up. He said Kevin's wife wouldn't let him go. I was playing Pinochle with um, this guy named Stan and a guy they called Taz, T-A-Z, Taz. And this other guy, I, I, I don't know who the other person was. can't remember who that person was. They said, Josh, you need to call your attorneys. And this was after my hearing. So everybody pretty much knew I was waiting on a phone call. At this point, I was well-known throughout the prison. Um, I worked in the gym. I was a prison photographer as well. My community was 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 pretty good in there at that point. I, I'd, I'd been there long enough to make friends, to meet lifelong friends. And when they the officer came in and said, hey, you got a phone call. Now, officer ran in, um, told me that he was excited. I was excited. Everybody else was excited. I went into the office and uh, they said, you need to call your attorneys now. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. You've reached the end of Episode 12, Part 1. Episode 12, Part 2 will pick up right where this episode left off. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. All of our episodes are dedicated to the memory of Michelle Lawless and to all the abuse survivors who were willing to share their stories with us. Be sure to go to www.thelawlessfiles.com to purchase an access pass for bonus content. And if you wouldn't mind, go to Spotify and leave us a good review. Again, thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. We appreciate everyone's support. Coming up on The Lawless Files. Oh, is it a mystery to you? Right. We can't find out where you were. No one knows. Well, I know it was with Kevin, but I thought it was in the afternoon. I mean, I may have been working. I don't know if I was working that day or not, but I mean, it's something... How am I supposed to know? I mean, I don't know what I did that early in the morning. To be honest with you, I thought I called, and he came over in a couple hours within an hour. So for me to remember where I was that morning, no, I don't know.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.